You're listening to a resource from Alpine Bible Church. Alpine Bible Church exists to know Christ Jesus together and to make Him known. We are located in Sugar Creek, Ohio. For more information, visit our website at alpinebible.org. May Jesus be glorified in your life. Book of Titus, you can work your way there, the New Testament book of Titus. <clears throat> While I was, uh, shortly after my surgery, I was uh, doing a lot of thinking about a lot of things, and uh, this subject, kind of bouncing off last week, has been on my mind a lot. It seems to be the course of my thoughts over the last number of years, and you probably have heard much from this topic from me, but I think it's important to continue in this. And uh, so my, uh, my thoughts were all over the place, about really about the church, about the future, uh, who we are, where we're going, what we believe. Uh, it's always a hard thing to watch in the flow of the church, to watch young people come into church, get into a thriving youth ministry, kind of uh, lights turned on about Jesus, get excited about the things of faith. There's a camaraderie that develops when you have fellow Christians your age that aren't ashamed of Jesus Christ, and you do things together, have events together. Uh, All of that is fantastic. Some parents were, uh, and probably still are, anxious to have their kids be in the youth ministry for that very same reason. But what is really, really difficult is to watch Kids trickle out of church after they graduate, go to university, college, get jobs, and lose that sense of joy and a sense of who they are in Christ, drift away. Many even abandon the faith, and you say, what happened? There's that problem. There's the uh, new address uh, today uh, uh, culturally about uh, the whole millennial and on down crowd that has been uh, critical of the church and oftentimes is more concerned about not being a part of any organized church. Uh, actually, there are different factors of that. Some, uh, some factions want a, uh, an experience that's more meaningful in their mind, and so they want uh, something more formal. So some millennials are choosing formalism. They they want uh, uh, a high. They want mass. They want uh, high profile uh, seriousness to uh, serve the service in their lives. Something they can experience uh, more, more perhaps more, uh, just just more eth- ethereal than what we are here. Uh, you have other millennials who uh, want no organized church at all. They just want to do their own thing. You have all kinds of ideas, but what they don't want is what they were exposed to. And what millennials have been exposed to, that's the, uh, uh, the point of contention with the church, is our hypocrisy. It's the adult uh, conform- conforming to uh, doldrums and lack of change and lack of excitement, lack of enthusiasm, uh, lack of consistency. Uh, to say with lip service, I believe in Jesus, and with our lives, that isn't happening. 
And so when others, especially our kids, watch us, that has developed into the culture that is now rejecting the very thing that we all, in our hearts, want our kids to follow. So there's concern today. Uh, churches are not growing. Churches are shrinking. There are big churches out there, but they're not doing that great either. And so uh, as a church, thinking about the future, how long this place will last, I don't know about you, but I sometimes ask myself, will this church be the same kind of church 10 years from now, or will it change and drift and accommodate uh, others in a certain way that turns the rest of us off? I mean, I mean, can I be a senior sitting in the back row and get fed from a church that changes? So I'm concerned, aren't you? And uh, those of you who are younger than I am, I expect more from you than what uh, other churches would be expecting. We have high expectations here that you would follow a path that would uh, simulate what you've seen, that you would incorporate into your life and your outflow of your Christian faith what we have said here and what hopefully we're living in, in view of everyone else. That's my hope. Uh, Paul writes this letter to Titus. We're not going to get much into it today. Uh, but I was certainly uh, thinking about this. I gave a title to a series, Establishing Order from Chaos, because uh, today I am seeing a drift back into chaos in terms of the fact most Christians don't know what they believe. Now, now I don't think that's true here at all. I do think that some of you who are newer here might, uh, I hope you're growing in Christ and finding uh, God's Word to be refreshing to you. That's what we're all about here. We have nothing else to say but God's Word. Uh, but obviously, uh, this is a problem, a trend, and so uh, I think we need to be on guard concerning this. Uh, this letter written to Titus was uh, obviously, uh, Titus was leading the uh, church on this island of Crete. Uh, it's interesting that uh, one wonders how this island even had the gospel. We have no record of uh, anything particularly happening on this island prior to Titus showing up and giving leadership. Uh, but obviously there had to have been saints already here, uh, which is why Paul uh, uh, wants to uh, leave Titus in charge of a church that's here that's obviously a church in crisis. Um, I, I wanted to say that uh, obviously if we go back and read the account, we uh, can say that uh, probably, most likely, uh, Jews who uh, may have already lived on this island of Crete, dispersed long ago and grew up there, would have made the journey back to Jerusalem for the Passover at least once a year. Uh, they would have, uh, maybe perhaps many of those would have been there when Jesus Christ was uh, put on the cross and was buried, and they were there long enough to hear rumors that he rose from the dead. Along with that, I believe the stir and the conspiracies and all that was going on, the undertones may have caused some of them to want to stay and uh, gain more information. Uh, we know that 40 days later on the day of Pentecost, as Peter was preaching, over 3,000 people in one moment got saved. Many of them Gentiles, uh, sorry, Jews who had come to Jerusalem from out of town, uh, many perhaps from Crete who had been there who have, would have heard the gospel and gotten saved and carried back to Crete a fragmented message of the gospel. I mean, when you don't have the New Testament, you don't know what the rules are. You don't know 
what the transition is from Old Testament to how you thought in the Old Testament with laws and rules and regulations and rituals, now transferring to a new story in Christ and a new uh, covenant in Christ. And so uh, how do you process all this new information? And they carried back just the gospel itself, uh, Jesus, who he claimed to be, and uh, heard that great message. That message had much doctrine in, in that message, but that's all they had. They carried that back to Crete and began to uh, meet together, perhaps, on the island of Crete, and incorporating into their faith all of their Judaism, their Jewish background, along with this new message, along with uh, those on this island who are Gentiles who had multiple pagan gods and all kinds of beliefs. And I'm sure it was a mishmash of all kinds of things that they were believing in. And once uh, Paul stumbles on this island, uh, the interest would have grown to do something about this problem. Acts 27, you don't need to turn, I'll just tell the story. In Acts 27, Paul had been arrested. He's on a ship being taken to Rome. Uh, Most of you who are students of the word know that on that ship, uh, it it was a difficult journey. So in verse 8 of chapter 27, uh, they uh, land at a point in a storm. They land at a point called Fair Havens on the south part of the island, uh, struggling to get there because of the currents and so on. And they get into a little harbor that's really a harbor that's exposed to the sea, a Mediterranean Sea. So it's still taking in a lot of the storm and waves and so on. And they harbored there for a bit. And that was at the place where uh, they wanted to press on and put the ship somewhere else that was safer. And Paul, the Apostle Paul said, don't do that. Don't go out of here. Stay here because uh, this is a time of uh, much storms. And they didn't listen to him. And they pressed out of that and they went on down and they lost their chance to harbor there. And they got swept to the island of Malta long away to the west. At any point, they landed for just a brief time at this place uh, this small little harbor called Fair Havens. We don't know how long they were there, a very short time, but they were there long enough for the ship to dock, get some supplies, probably leave some things there. And while they're doing that, the, uh, those on the ship were allowed to probably go off. I'm guessing that the Apostle Paul met a believer or two while he was there. I'm guessing he led someone to Jesus in the five minutes he had, because that's how Paul was. At any rate, Paul left that island with a sense of a burden for those left behind who were in sort of the mess of theology, the the mishmash of that. And he wanted to come back and disciple and establish churches that had organization and understood what the truth was. And so that's kind of, in a sense, the background for this letter to Titus. We don't know when, but somewhere along the journey, I'm, I'm saying Titus could have been on that ship on that journey. We don't really know much about that. We don't know when Paul and Titus actually were ever on that island, except Paul was on the island on this particular day in Acts 27. What we do know is that from verse 5 of Titus chapter 1, Paul said, for this reason I left you in Crete. So they were both together there at some point. And he wanted Titus to obviously stay and do some real organization with those who were sort of understood the gospel, but yet were all messed up in their theology. That's kind of the background of this. My concern today, obviously, as we start this journey, is to address this issue of leadership and handing off leadership and who do we follow, who do we believe, 
there's an author, his name's Alex McFarland. He, uh, he's a director for Christian Worldview and Apologetics at North Greenville University. He's a talk show host. He's written 18 books. His, uh, one, of, one of his most recent books is called Abandoned Faith, Why Millennials Are Walking Away and How Can You Lead Them Home? I uh, wanted to uh, share just a couple of thoughts from him. Uh, really, there's only nothing new that I read here. I think these are all old things that just simply are restated. But obviously, uh, again, this whole thing of hypocrisy, the things that they've seen, 10 reasons why they leave. And there's all kinds of reasons, and many of them we all would know. But he gets to uh, sort of a summary, and he says a couple of things. Finally, is it really any wonder that kids raised in the churches of 21st century America aren't often stirred to lifelong commitment? Most churches are so occupied with marketing themselves to prospective attendees that they wouldn't dream of risking their brand by speaking tough-as-nails truth. Because we don't preach the... I'm saying because the church does not preach the truth, skirts around it because obviously sensitive issues, we want to avoid those things because we want to make everybody feel good when they leave here. That's the mentality of so many churches. And because of that, he's saying that's one of the primary reasons we don't see this change in people's lives. He goes on and says this, Is it true that our culture has grown visibly antithetical to God and Christian commitment? It is true. He says, but in addressing the spiritual attrition rate of young America, it must be admitted that a prayerless, powerless church peddling versions of Christianity light share in the blame. And God only knows the degree of our complicity and also the time when we'll be concerned enough to change our direction. I I honestly don't think the church will change its direction according to prophecy. I think the church will continue to get worldly and anemic. Uh, The the only factor I'm concerned about is will Alpine Bible do that? And so as we uh, come together, that's something for every member, every attender here to uh, say, I want to be a part of something where I am a contributor to a church staying on course. I want to be sure that I don't let anyone teach me something that isn't true. I want to make sure I'm not a part of a church that never prays. I, I, I don't want to be a prayerless church and be a part of that. Uh, someone made a comment Wednesday night about our prayer time and said, let's pray that more people come to pray. I, I don't think that's a bad prayer. Uh, I know that that's not the only time slot when anybody prays. But it does sometimes send a signal that prayer is not priority. And so, uh, obviously, in the days we live in, this is important. You can imagine a church that's been established by people who don't know how to do it. They don't know what to do. They, they haven't had a chance to observe an organized church, so they have no idea. They're, they have some ideas of who Jesus is now, but they also have all the, all the mess from their past and their Judaism, and they're mixing all that together. They're trying to figure it out. And you can imagine the mess that this was and why Paul was so concerned, but that really is not much different from churches today who have no idea because they don't preach doctrine. Doctrine's a bad word in so many churches today. So obviously that's important. As I was laying in a hospital bed, these are the things I was thinking about. I just am so concerned that I just think so many young people don't know what they believe. And I know our young people do here, but I want to challenge you to not let go of that. And, and, and here's, here's something to, uh, to consider this morning as we begin this. There's a question that I want us to process through. and it's, 
is this idea of who should I follow? Who should I be listening to? Uh, From what source do we rightly acquire truth? Who should I trust that rightly disseminates the truth? And you can imagine as Titus is trying to uh, uh, take and corral people who are out there into something organized, there had to have been some question marks from people as to this. Who are you? Who do you think you are? What gives you the idea that you know more than we do to tell us how to operate as Christians? When I first came to Sugar Creek, I went to the uh, classic... I don't want to pick on if you're from a church around here. If you're visiting and you're from a church in Sugar Creek, please forgive me. This is not to be too critical, just a bit. But uh, I went to the uh, clergy association meeting because a pastor in town invited me to come. I was brand new in town. He said, uh, I'd like you to come and join me. Meet the guys. Okay. Well, I can tell you that I was uh, under the gun at that meeting. Uh, I immediately had things like, who do you think you are starting a church? What, what, I was being scrutinized. Do you have any education? Uh, do you know what you're doing? Do you, uh, I mean, who authorized you to do this? I, I was getting all kinds of questions, and I'm like, uh, you know, I, I can be very sarcastic sometimes under pressure. I just said, uh, the Lord. <laughs> what else are you going to say? Somebody's name? That wouldn't mean a thing to them. Uh, Fred, Fred invited me to town, <laughs> which he did. But that wouldn't go over very good down there, I can tell you that right now. And so as you just sort of start defending yourself and you're deflecting these things, it's like you just feel very uncomfortable. I can tell you, first of all, not, not, not that this is our study, but the Apostle Paul went through the same thing. Almost everywhere he went as he preached the gospel, he was criticized, he was accused, he was uh, denounced, he was, uh, he, he was imperfect to anyone else, uh, he, he didn't sound good, he didn't say the right things, he was too oppressive. I mean, everybody had their opinions about him and didn't like his approach in many cases. But this question of uh, who has something to say is very important. Uh, I, uh, I can tell you that when Paul begins this, look what he says. Paul, a bondservant of God. This is how he starts to uh, introduce himself. Now, this is a letter to Titus to help endorse Titus to be accepted as a leader on Crete. So before that Paul can endorse Titus, Paul has to give some value to who's the authority behind Titus. So when he writes this letter, this is the first thing he says, a bondservant. That's not very impressive if you want to put a credential out there for somebody else. I, uh, I, I am always impressed by uh, this. I mean, we know from other uh, places where Paul interjected his uh, status, who he was, what he had experienced in life. We know in, in the book of Philippians, he goes through a bit of a list of who he is and what he came through and his education. Uh, he felt like he needed to do that because, again, he wasn't being responded to very well by people. Uh, you'll find in, uh, in, in to the Corinthians, in Second Corinthians, he had to do the same thing. He had to defend himself, and he walks through a, a list of things of who he was and what he's gone through and how much he has suffered for the gospel compared to others. You have those kinds of things. I pastored in six churches. I taught at Liberty Bible College. Now it's Liberty University. I've been allowed to lecture there once in a blue moon, which is nice. I taught Old Testament survey at Central Baptist College and Seminary in Toronto. Uh, Now it's called Heritage Baptist. 
I taught courses at Briarcrest University. By, by the way, they asked me to join the professor's staff there. Uh, and uh, I asked my wife, and she said, absolutely not. I, that was going to be a good gig for me, but uh, she didn't like it, so we didn't do that. Uh, got to go back then and join Dave Adams and taught at Lexington Baptist College while I was there, which is now Boys School of the Bible at, at Southern Seminary. I could go on and say stuff about me to impress you or at least make you feel like I know something, but uh, like Paul, there has to be a point where you say, it's not about any of that because really nobody cares about that. But on the other hand, those who do care about that are probably a problem in and of themselves. If I go out to dinner with somebody and they want to know all about my education, I figure these people got a bone to pick here. They're looking for something more serious than wanting to know who I am. Sometimes that happens. So here's Paul who introduces himself to a crowd who really doesn't care a whole lot about his background, but he says this, I am a bondservant of God. It's the first thing he says. And then he adds, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Those are his two criteria. Uh, I'm a bondservant of God. Uh, Now, we all know, uh, we've heard this many times, this is somebody who is totally, absolutely, wholly committed to a cause or committed to a person or a belief by the voluntary yielding of their entire life to that issue. Nothing else for them matters. So for Paul, God was first. God was in full control of his life. God directs all of his motives and actions, and that's who he's saying he is when he says a bondservant of God. Uh, This introduction, by the way, Uh, would be sending a message to any self-appointed Jewish leader. And there were obviously on Crete many of these who came back with the story and uh, were sharing with their family and friends and relatives what they heard and bringing back this new message. And so they become the key player, trying to translate what that means and how to operate. And Paul knows that many of these who were Jewish uh, in, in in understanding of the law would understand from his comment at least this, that this guy is so committed to God far more than most of us are. They would know that from Deuteronomy. Uh, I'm going to read this text to you in chapter 15. I'm going to read this to us again. We've heard it. I think Nick's probably shared this recently, but I want to go back and say it one more time. In Deuteronomy 15, just the criteria for what is a bondservant, I just think sometimes we still don't get this. So let me read this to you. What is a bondservant according to the Word of God? Now, if you have a problem with uh, being a servant of somebody else, don't listen to that. Understand the tone here. Verse 12. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, this is important. I want to make sure we stress this today. I'm not talking to just men today. A bondservant is somebody who is male or female, If this person is sold to you and serves you six years, then in the seventh year you shall let him or her go free from you. And when you send them away free from you, you shall not let him go away empty-handed. You shall supply liberally from your flock from your threshing floor, uh, from your winepress, from what the Lord has blessed you with, you shall give, uh, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this thing today. 
And if it happens that if, if he or she says to you, I will not go away from you because he loves you and your house, since he, or we could say she, prospers with you, then you shall take an all. Do you know what an all is? We don't, A-W-L. You know, it's a little tool with a sharp point. You know, it's very sharp. It's, it's great for piercing your nose and your ears. That, that's what he's going to tell you. Do not go home and do this in your garage, okay? Uh, if you do, make sure you use some alcohol. Keep it clean. But uh, He says here, You shall take an awl and thrust it through the ear to the, to the door, and he shall or she shall be your servant forever. Also to your female servant you shall do likewise, it says, and it shall not seem hard to you when you send him away free from you, for he has been a worth a, a double hired servant in your serving in, in serving you for six years, then you then the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. The tone here is simply this a servant who has been under the blessing of a good master, first of all, in a good home, a servant who has fallen in love with how they've been treated and how they've had a life with this family, a servant who says, I don't want to be set free from this. I want to stay with you forever. I enjoy this. I I want to be here serving like this. Okay, then we'll make this a forever contract. And this is the tone of what, of what Paul is saying when he says, I am a bondservant of God. I've given myself to God. I don't want to ever be set free from that. I'm his forever, and I serve him willingly and lovingly. And I've given my life to him. I've pledged myself to him and how important that must be for him so that we could have a similar thing, and I can say to any of us today, though this is talking about Paul, all of us here, I believe, are called to this. Luke 9.23, Jesus made the statement, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That, that's really what Jesus is saying. You don't have to take it all and pierce your ear. It's about committing yourself to something or to someone, in this case to Jesus Christ, with your whole life. But here's the thing. When Paul says a bondservant, uh, which can be, in many people's minds, a very low position, Paul has elevated that position to the fact that there's no higher honor than to be called a bondservant of God. I need to say that again. You didn't hear me. There's no higher honor than to be a bondservant of Jesus Christ following him. So as he begins this uh, letter to authenticate who he is, he starts with this understanding of who he is, and he has set the tone for humility and for a commitment like, like no one else when he makes that statement. He says, then he says he's an apostle. Now this we can't relate to very much, but I'm going to try to understand this for us all. Every believer knew that the teaching of Jesus was, first of all, handed to his apostles. When you go back to the book of Acts and you see the unfolding of the gospel, it was the apostles who took the message of the one who was crucified and rose from the dead. And those who were eyewitnesses of that, who were with him, it says uh, one of the criteria for an apostle is that you had to be with him from the very beginning of the, of the uh, ministry of John the Baptist 
we're told all the way in Acts chapter 1, we're told all the way from that, all the way to the resurrection of Jesus, you had to have been there for that story for you to be qualified to be an apostle. An apostle's uh, uh, purpose uh, was uh, kind of a, uh, a, a, a position created by the Lord to help transition from Old Testament law and covenant to the New Testament and establishing the church of Jesus Christ. Somebody has to have authority from God to tell us what to believe and how to operate. So this is why apostles were created by God for our very purpose, to establish that authority in this transition. They wanted to help people understand grace as opposed to works. So he gives modifiers here to what that means. He says, uh, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm going to go on and read the whole text now. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith, uh, and I'm going to change that word according to, the better translation is for the sake of. Helps you understand what he's saying better. The King, New King James is a little bit weak there. According to doesn't help, but for the sake of is the better phrase. So an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, has promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God, our Savior. He has... Uh, credentials here. He's saying what I'm, who I am, and how I operate, and what I say, what I believe, what I say. Uh, obviously, handing that off, we're going to see later on to Titus. All of that is from God and directly from God. This is not something that I invented. I didn't make myself a leader. Uh, this is all God's doing in my life. Is basically what he's saying. But he wants us to know that. He is an apostle, made an apostle by Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect. You and I, by the way, are recipients of that, right? He was an apostle for the sake of your faith. Because when we read Paul's writings, our faith is certainly strengthened, reinforced. His truth is something we all uh, find as dear to our hearts. Uh, No one else has said about sin what Paul has said to us. And no one else has said about righteousness what Paul has said to us. So uh, we find that uh, very, very important for us. I wanted to just uh, take a pause here and think about this word elect for, for a second, not to scare you, but obviously it's an important word because none of us knows, I don't know and you don't know, who is marked out for God for salvation. I have certain people I've prayed for, my heart out for certain people, and nothing ever happens. There's other people that, in my heart, sometimes I, I don't think I want to pray for them. And <laughs> they get saved. And I think, wait a minute, what, how, how does that work? How, how come my husband or my kids aren't responding, but that person's husband and kids are? What, what's the difference? Uh, same God, same passion and prayers. I don't also know anything about God's timing, and neither do you. Uh, We don't know anything about the circumstances by which anyone suddenly becomes a pursuer of God. Something happens in people's lives, but we have no control of that. And so the most obstinate person, the the most cantankerous, cranky person can find Christianity and be awakened to that truth, while others who are very nice people, who are kind and and, uh, 
gentle, don't seem to respond. So Paul himself can give a testimony to the fact that no one was more obstinate to the gospel than he was. Right, So in his own testimony in Acts 10, we know that he was pursued by Jesus Christ. No one else could ever get through to him. Now, he did watch, he did listen to Stephen in Acts 6, or 7. He listened to Stephen's sermon, and obviously you couldn't be there and not be somehow caught up in the incredible sermon that Stephen preached. That would have been very stirring. Paul heard that. Paul heard Stephen say as, as Stephen's clothes were thrown at the feet of, of Saul, who was before he was Paul. He would have heard Stephen say, Father, forgive them, as he's being pelted with rocks. And Saul would have heard that. You, you would think that that would somehow soften his heart to, wait a minute, I think I'm killing an innocent guy here. But no, he was so impassioned against Christianity, he didn't care at that point in his life. That person called Saul was pursued by Jesus Christ. There there wasn't one person who could go to him and say, can I talk to you about Jesus? Because he would have arrested the guy and put him in prison. So the Lord had to directly confront him, it says in Acts 10, and speak to him and address him. And that that exchange changed his life. Remember Jacques? John and Joel have gone to see Jacques. Uh, and Sebastian, Jacques' brother, and they're going to do this project right now in, in Ivory Coast. They, today they're in church. They've already had church. Uh, but uh, tomorrow, which will be tonight, they'll be getting, getting to it pretty soon, you know, about 3 in the morning or 4 in the morning. But I believe that uh, as we heard the testimony here a long, uh, years ago from, from Jacques that he was on a tractor rig <laughs> working, and he suddenly came to light about Jesus Christ. He got off that tractor and gave his life to Christ. There was no evangelist out there in the dirt talking to him. Well, how does that happen? And so obviously we know that the Lord can change someone's life all on their own. When Paul says, I'm an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect, what he's saying is God has put me in a position where I'm... I'm given this title, this, this task, for your sake, for the sake of others, and, and so they can find the gospel. But I want to say, first of all, that before that ever happens, the Lord's already at work in people's hearts and leading them to himself in different ways. But bottom line is, these two avenues are taking place today. Some of you are not hearing me and don't care what I'm saying, and maybe you'll leave here and uh, you'll go through life, and maybe or maybe not the Lord will speak to you directly somewhere else. Some of you have testimonies of driving down the road and you're driving your car and suddenly you just know, you pull over to the side of the road, you know Jesus Christ is real and you want to do business with him. That's his specific spirit working in your life, which is wonderful. Others have to hear a preacher give an invitation before they'll respond. I don't know what the difference is, I just know it's God. So here's the thing, as he says who he is, I want to help you transfer yourself into understanding that we've all been called to be this to others. When Jesus told in Matthew 5, he said, you are the light of the world, he wasn't talking to apostles, he was talking to all of us, right? Right? When Jesus, uh, uh, sorry, when Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2, 15 and 16, he talks about us being uh, to shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. He's talking to us. Uh, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 uh, that we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. 
And so, in a sense, as Paul was called an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect, I want to say this morning that you and I are also called to follow Jesus Christ for the sake of the elect because you and I are to be influencers of others to the gospel, your kids and your home, and, 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 and on and on we go. So there's a responsibility. So as a long-distance church concerned about leadership and so on, the first form of leadership is all of us understanding who we are. Paul says, I'm a bondservant. Well, so are we if we're following Christ. At least that's what we're supposed to be. Paul says he's an apostle. Well, there are no more apostles, I don't believe. Uh, Authentic, uh, gifted apostles. That was for a time. But every one of us here are called for the sake of others to live that life before them, right? There's nothing new. This is nothing new. I just want to clear this up. If you want to write these down, I skipped, I skipped over them, but you can write these down. John six forty four. Jesus just tells us, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. There has to be a work going on in your heart. Verse 65, he says, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. So there's a work undertone in your life by the Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to himself, his voice calling and directing. But then he also is going to use others in your life uh, as a voice to, for the sake of the, the faith in your life, to bring you to truth. And hopefully you'll be listening. I, I'm concerned. I'm concerned that uh, this, is, uh, this can be so routine in our lives. I don't want this to be routine. I don't want to come here on Sunday mornings routine. Do you? And there needs to be a sense of the freshness of the gospel in our hearts. And sometimes when that's not happening, we have to figure out how can I renew that in my life? Because there's so much at stake. Because if I'm a Christian to follow Christ, it's not just for me alone to go to heaven and just me and Jesus all the way. It's for me to walk this walk and then, and then be for the sake of others. My testimony of faith is for you and for others that you understand where I'm going. I just finished reading uh, The Pilgrim's Progress for the... Second time, I think, Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read it, you really ought to. Now, I'm reading the old English version. It's really hard to read, really tough reading. You've got to read it about five, ten times. But, uh, but Pilgrim, on his journey, the, the, there's two books, book one and book two. So Pilgrim, on his journey, he tells first his wife that he's going on this journey, uh, this journey of following, pursuing truth, pursuing uh, the Lord, uh, he wants to go to the celestial city, which is heaven. So all this, there's lots of, lots of symbolism in the book, but he's, this is what he wants to do, and he's going to go. And uh, his wife basically says, I'm not ready to go with you. I don't, I'm not going. So the book one is about his journey without her. So he's going to the celestial city, and he, inc- he goes through all the uh, journey and all the obstacles and all the troubles and trials that it takes to finally get to the place where you're with the Lord and Savior uh, of your life. And so that's his journey. But uh, obviously, uh, in that process of time, the illustration is that he had to leave behind his wife and kids because they weren't ready to go with him in that journey. But he was not going to deny himself of doing the journey. The journey is the right thing to do, even if your family's not going with you. 
Now, the book is not saying leave your family. That is not the point of the book. The book is talking about in, a, in an allegorical kind of way that he's going on a journey, uh, and obviously all of us, as we find Christ as Lord and Savior, a journey begins in our life. We start to change. We are transformed from fleshly to spiritual. We, we want to do certain things that we didn't used to want to do, and so that's really what the journey is about. And as we're on this journey, obviously, this is the work of God in our lives. And who can explain it? But we just know it's happening. But obviously, for the sake of his family, uh, he was going to make sure that he did go on the journey. If he had not gone on the journey for the sake of his family, they would have gone to hell. But book two, his wife says, I want what he had. I, I, I want to go where he went. I am going to go on that journey. She talks to her kids. We're going to go on this journey with where dad went, basically. I'm saying it in English, modern English. But the kids say, okay, they're going to go. But the town says, you fools, why would you do that? Why would you take your kids out of the comfort of their home and out of their community and take this trip, which is full of traps and trials and fears and and monsters and all kinds of stuff. Why would you do that? And she said, because I know that what he had was real and I want the same thing. I'm, I'm giving you my version of it, but that's really the gist of it. And so this book two is about their journey and how hard it is and how intriguing it is. But they finally arrive. It's, it's an amazing thing. When Paul says, I'm a bondservant and I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect, he wants us to know it's worth it. It's worth it to go on a journey with Jesus Christ. And it's worth it because if you, if you say, it's too hard, or I have to uh, deny my faith, I can't, I can't go on that journey. That, there's too much sacrifice involved. A bondservant? No, thank you. And if that's how you think about that, then you're not for the sake of. You're missing that point, for the sake of, because my life and my decisions are certainly, I hope, for the sake of, not just me, but all those around me. So that I want my family to have what I have in my heart. I live my life for the sake of not just me and what I get out of it, but for everyone else around me. So when you deny truths, when you deny walking with Christ, when you set that aside for your own desires and wants and fleshly things, and when you do that, you have lost the for the sake of why you do what you do because now you've lost those around you as they don't see that faithfulness and that testimony. He says, I'm a, an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect. And then he adds this, and for the sake of, we can, put, we can insert that again, and for the sake of the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness. So you have this uh, understanding of this for the sake of truth. I want, I want those around me to understand what the truth is and, and, and to process the truth and not hear the false lies that are all around us out there that are really destructive truths in a sense. They're not true, but they're given as truths. Everything from the field of science to the field of, uh, uh, of social uh, issues to uh, today, the whole re, uh, rethinking of 
who we are as people and what label we're going to call ourselves and we can reinvent ourselves into whatever sex we want to be and all this nonsense that's happening out there, which are mistruths because we're never told the whole truth when we talk about all those who go through this stuff and find themselves empty at the end of their journeys. The acknowledgement of the truth. This is the truth. And so, young people, please listen. When you leave here, the first thing the world's going to do, and if you read Pilgrim's Progress, it's right in the same book, and that was written centuries ago, 1600-something. That's when that was written, and the truth hasn't changed. You'll be bombarded with other truths that replace the truth that you know is right. Here, you're going to hear the truth as it comes from the Word of God. And as soon as you step out of this place, under a new place, and by the way, when I left my home at 18, and when I went to Trinity College in Illinois, I learned something really quick. Christian schools can be the worst place to send your kids. Never uh, believe that because it has a title that it's a good thing. Because... And that day, now Trinity may have changed. Uh, it has its good points, believe me. It has still academically, it's a great place. But obviously, it has its bad points. And in that day, I was there at a very tough time, and Trinity did not have very many students, a few, but not very many, who were tracking Christ from my vantage point. John W. Peterson, who wrote most of our gospel music in church in the 60s. If you're uh, anybody who understands that, some of you nod your head, very few of you would know who that is. But in the 1960s, he was the key writer of songs other than hymns. He was the first one to break that hymn thing with choruses. John W. Peterson. He wrote all the cantatas that churches sang at Christmas and Easter. Famous uh, uh, composer for all of that. His daughter went to Trinity, and was having big party bashes in the dorm and having sex with guys and drinking parties. And she got kicked out eventually when she got caught by somebody turned her in. But I see, as a young guy, I'm thinking, John W. Peterson's daughter, wow, she must be something else because he's a great guy from what I know. George, uh, I just went blank. Maybe I'm not supposed to tell you. Singer for Billy Graham. George, George Shea. What a great singer. What a great person. His son was there. Nothing like his dad. Sometimes you go to these places and you have these expectations. And I've met, I've met lots of people along my journey. And I thought I would evaluate them and say, that they shouldn't be like who they are. Something's wrong. Uh, professors who teach and preach at some of these schools and they're all knocked out of their positions by their immorality or their foolishness. And we, we wonder about all of that. So this idea of truth, it, it doesn't come just from the church because sometimes churches and institutions that are called Christian can be just as damaging about truth as, as the secular world. Are you hearing me? We have to be very careful. That's why I asked you in the beginning, who will you listen to? Who will be the one that really, truly you trust who disseminates truth in a right way? And it's not just because it has a label. You have to be able to look and evaluate, and you have to basically know something of what you believe before you're listening and evaluating. So 
I said last week, I used a phrase when we were talking about Jack uh, Kale. I said uh, that may this church always be an incubator of raising up leaders who know the truth and who stand for the truth. And that's still true. So if you're young today, I'm challenging you. All of you who are young people, I can look around and see you peppered through the audience today. I'm challenging you. This is serious stuff. This thing about faith in Christ, it's absolutely serious. And we can play with it. We can, we can think that it's not. And what happens is if we only see it played out by those around us who are not serious, it's so damaging to our long-term understanding of truth. This is not a game. And so we must be very careful that we understand that. According to truth, for the sake of the truth, Paul says, I'm an apostle. And so truth is critical. I, I pray that those around you will know the truth because they've met you. Then he says, which accords with. So now he's talking about, here's a modifier of truth. If you are uh, talking about truth that you're going to receive, truth, uh, he says, which accords with, or it's manifested by godliness in hope of eternal life. This is the kind of truth you're looking for. Truth that accords with godliness. This, if, if I'm going to believe something, it, it has to have this component to it, that it, it's godly in its essence, uh, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. So we have this sense of two things. Uh, uh, godliness is one quality, and, and this eternal hope that comes out of truth. Those two things must be in truth. So we talk about Jesus when he says, I am the way, truth, and the life. He's talking about the fact that in me, you have those two components that are so uh, vital in your life. Uh, You you obviously have a a truth that accords with godliness because he was perfect and holy and so on. But then also his message is simply that of eternal life. Those two things are always going to be in the real truth. Anybody who has another truth better have those two things as, as uh, components of that. A desire to live godly and a faith that rests on eternal life. I, I, in talking with people to, about Christ, you'd say, uh, 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 try to give your testimony and share with them what, what it means to have a life in Christ. And so many times, a response will come back. Well, if I make a decision to follow Christ, I don't think I'm ready to change this and that. And, and it's kind of like the rich young ruler wanting to let go of what he's holding on to that's really the most important thing. And, and, and we struggle with it. Some folks struggle with it. I don't think I can let go of this. Or I don't think I can change that. I don't think I even want to. I like this. I like that. And if I follow Christ, he's going to ask me to change all that. So there are some hesitations sometimes from some to follow him because of what they'll have to give up. Now, I've always told people, well, you don't have to give those things up. Christ just wants you to have him. And that's true, but that also can be a trap because I think some folks then deduct that, well, I can have Christ and keep all the things I have, and that's not the message. So we have to be careful that we don't uh, uh, put works with grace, but we do have to remind people that following Christ is not just this simple uh, little uh, trifle kind of uh, decision that says, uh, Jesus, I love you. I give you my life. Amen. I mean, that's not, it has to be more than that. So John MacArthur wrote his book on it according to uh, uh, 
whatever it was called, back in the 70s. I forgot what it's called. According to the gospel, uh, John wrote that book. It was all about the fact that salvation can't just be by some simple words you say uh, before you go to bed or, or at a meeting. Uh, I, uh, it, it, we call it fire insurance. It, it has to be way more committed than that, understanding of that. So that's why I'm always concerned about young people when they uh, get saved at five years old and they think that that's, that's it. And I want to always test them to say, wait a minute, do you understand what it means to really follow Christ? Uh, teenagers, do you understand what it really means? There's a cost to making the decision to follow Christ. It's, it's not just a simple f- flippant prayer. And so we must be careful of that. So this truth that accords with godliness and in the hope of eternal life. So one of the first signs of having truth in my life is that I want to respond to the truth. If, if, I, if I believe that something's true and I profess that and I sort of take that truth into my life, it should bear the fruit of wanting to do what the truth says, Right? And so when Jesus, the author of truth, says, if you're going to follow me, take up your cross daily, how do, what do I do with that? And, and how do you follow him if you're trying to hold on to a whole lot of other stuff? That's why he says take up the cross. You can't carry. <laughs> uh, the other day, Meryl and I went into Walmart, and we didn't have a cart. Do you ever do that? You go in and you don't have a cart and you think you're going in for one thing. And why is it that you suddenly have like 10 or 12 things? And it's, you know the line that says you can only have, is it 20 things? When you have 21 things, <laughs> do you still go through that line and sort of just cheat and shove it through? Or do you confess as you're going through, I have a little more than 20, is that okay? And sometimes a knobby person will say No. <laughs> But sometimes we try to carry so much stuff that it's impossible for us to follow Jesus. And so I think when he says, take up your cross and follow me, he knows that we can't bear all the stuff we have. And if I take the cross up, everything else has to be set down. That's the challenge. What do I need to set down to follow him? I, I, have, I want to follow this truth. I, I, this truth shows itself in, in a desire to change. And then this truth has undergirding it this intense living hope message in my own heart. It's something that now has changed me on the inside. I, I, I've lost the sense of fear about the future. I, 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 I know it's all in his hands. I can trust him. It's the fruit of having truth in your life, which shows itself in godliness and in the hope of eternal life. Paul wrote it this way in Ephesians 1, 18 and 19. He kind of turns it around, but he still says the same thing. He says that the eyes of, that the eyes of your understanding, being enlightened, that's the truth, that you may know... What is the hope of his calling? Not only that, he says, but what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? That means you're, you're learning about that. You're not just thinking about it. You're learning. You're experiencing that. Then he goes on and says, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? So you see, when you have truth in your life, you're suddenly experiencing change. How you think, how you act, it's all happening. And that's truth truly working. So you know what? If you say, I'm a follower of Jesus, one of the tests of following Jesus is, do you have truth showing itself in your life? 
And if you have a sense of wanting to be godly, wanting to follow Christ, if there's a tug in your heart to want to do that, and also that you have a, a sense of, of, of assurance and hope in you of eternal life, that nothing can take that away. That's the manifestation that you are following truth. Matter of fact, he goes on and says, uh, then, not only does it accord with godliness and the hope of eternal life, he says it's manifested. That, that means it's revealed. Uh, <clears throat> it's revealed to us. Let me read that. He says, uh, For the sake of the faith of the God's elect, the acknowledgement of truth which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching. Now Paul brings it right back. This is what he's doing now. He's starting to introduce Titus. He's starting to uh, uh, explain why he's writing this and the handoff to Titus, who's now going to be the one who's going to lead you and teach the truth to you. So he's basically setting them up to understand that. This, this uh, uh, message of truth, which accords with godliness and, and the hope of eternal life, manifested or revealed to us through his word, through preaching, and we come back and say, in that day, there was no New Testament, so no one could go and read the Bible in their hotel rooms. There was no Bible, uh, no, certainly not the New Testament. The apostles then were the ones who had to somehow uh, take the message of being with Jesus and what that means, the firsthand experience with him. They were the eyewitnesses of his majesty, it says in Second Peter. Uh, they're, they're the ones who, uh, who uh, lived holy lives. It says in that same text. So it was important for Paul to give this credential of himself. He didn't want any believer in Crete, and I would say in Alpine Bible Church today, he didn't want any believer uh, now or at any point in time in the future to question those, in this case, apostles who were assigned their position by God himself, and for you and I, though we have the apostles' writings, that would be our chief uh, manuscript. This is what we go by. This is the book that steers us. So we're having the same teaching that those folks received, except it's been written down for us. And then the last thing he says, which was, he adds this little phrase, which was committed to me, at the end of verse 3, according to the commandment of God, our Savior. So his own testimony comes back again, being an apostle. Uh, Paul was saved. We know from uh, his testimony he was set apart by God and he was sent uh, by God to declare the gospel, especially to Gentiles, but also to, to everyone. But he was also sent to also direct the organization of the local church. I'm going to end with this today. Just anybody in our church who's teaching a class, who's preaching the word of God, who's maybe teaching a nursing home, wherever you are involved at giving the word of God to someone else. Can I just say this to you? And I heard this at the board meeting yesterday. It was very pleasing to my ears. Uh, do not forget your spiritual mentors. I want to say that to us, which goes two ways. If you're a, a senior, long-term believer, you have something to hand down to others. Now, if you're griping and complaining about your bones aching and your joints and 
you know, you can't hardly think straight and you hate being old and blah, 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 blah. Uh, you're not going to be heard by anyone. Even though it's true, <laughs> you're not going to be heard. Because the younger generation is looking for, looking for that truth that's true. They're looking for that vibrancy of faith that should be in your life. They're looking for the Holy Spirit's power in your life working. When you get older, you need to take life as an experience of grace every day. What God has done in your life, there should still be a testimony from your lips of the joy that you've had in knowing Christ all of your life. Right? That's... That just goes with the territory. And we are old. We are getting old, some of us. We're getting, we're getting old, some of us. We're, we're getting way out there. And it's kind of scary. And you know what? We can, we can sort of disappear because that's what happens when you get older. You just, you're here and then suddenly you disappear. It, you, and I'm not making fun. I'm saying you're, you're going off with Christ. You're, you're, that's the journey. And this church should always have a great sense of joy in knowing you and being able to say things about you after you've left here, that you've left your mark on someone's life because you walked with Christ. You knew what you believed and you loved Christ and you were faithful even when it hurt. Nice to see Lois here today. She had a a hip replacement. It's nice to be here. And I told Lois before surgery, I said, Lois, when the surgery's over and the winter comes, you can make snow angels again. <laughs> and I promise you she'll be doing it. But the joy of Christ is so contagious, even in someone who's a senior. Believe me. And the opposite, when you're just like a prune that got out of bed and you just, you know, you're all shriveled up, and I'm not I'm talking about your personality, not your skin. That happens. That's just, it goes to the territory. But you know what? When our personality turns like that, we turn people off. And many assess us and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Where's the, where's the testimony of faith? And so it's important that you realize that. If you're a younger person, don't deceive yourself into thinking that you've got this package of what it means to follow Christ. Unless you understand what it means to be a bondservant. Unless you understand there's a cost to being a Christian, don't bother telling us that you are one unless you understand the cost of what it means to be one. Don't play this surface game. Well, I got Jesus in my life. You know, and you say it so tritely and so anemically that most of us know it's not real. And most of us know that when you leave here, you're going to fall flat on your face. You're going to end up believing some other false truth and be led away. This is your place and your chance. This is your grace time to know what you believe, to stand strong in that truth, and press on for Jesus Christ. Paul had two things to say. I'm a, I'm a bondservant and an apostle. I have this to say. I'm just me. By the grace of God, I am who I am. But I am here and walking this walk for the sake of, of those around me and those who come after me. That's what we're all about. Do you hear that this morning? Let's pray. Lord, as we uh, 
take your word and apply it to our lives, we, we realize this isn't easy. It's difficult. We're reminded time and again from your word that following you is a commitment that's deep and personal. It's meaningful. And Lord, help each of us as we process this truth today to take it home, take it to heart, myself included, to wake up tomorrow as determined and as purposeful for you as we were today. I pray for our young people here. I pray for them dearly, Lord, that they would, they would seek to know the truth and that they would not take anything less than the truth from your word as their truth that you would put that on their hearts and they would stand strong in it. I pray for parents that they would live that truth out in a way before their kids, that their kids have no question of who, who they are and what they believe. Lord, I pray for our seniors today, again, as, we, as we walk through our journey and end our journey, that we would be as committed to you as we were the day we found you. Matter of fact, we would have so many stories of grace and your blessings that we're overflowing, waiting to come to heaven and share it with everybody else that's waiting for us. Lord, we uh, thank you for the journey. Thank you for this church. Thank you for your presence among us. May you dwell in our hearts today in a fresh way. Through your spirit, we pray in Christ's name.